You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Paul McKercher, a music recordist, producer, and mixer. Paul has worked with many Australian and international artists and has been awarded arias for producer and engineer of the year. In this episode, Paul shares formative memories of playing guitar and cello, lessons learned while working at the ABC and Radio Triple J, and insights into the creative and professional dynamics at play when collaborating with artists in the studio. Paul also reflects on the art and science of recorded music and its capacity to emotionally affect and resonate with audiences. Here's my conversation with Paul McKercher. I thought we could start off by finding out a little bit more about you. Um, so, we—I guess—were you always interested in music, or were you always interested in technology, or you know, what were you, what were you kind of like when you were younger? You can interpret that. I- as far back as you want to go, yeah. Um, oh, look, I was a um, I was a nerdy kid, a bit of an introvert, uh, but I did always have a very strong interest in music, and I think I started playing guitar at about age four. I think learnt the the three basic ACDC chords, and and uh, that got me going. But I was also always fascinated by the sound of records. And uh, I was b- born into a musical family. I had um, I had brothers and sisters that uh, whose tastes um, I, uh, I I hooked into with the records that they were buying. And um, something that always fascinated me about records was well, firstly how they were made, but particularly how all the all the sounds fitted together so that it sounded like a co- like a cohesive whole and um, gave you a pleasurable listening experience. And I had an inkling perhaps that it was um, a lot more complex than it had appeared. Like, uh, you know, like so many good things, they appear easy, but actually have layers of complexity hidden underneath them. So that was something that fascinated me. And um, I tinkered with electronics as a kid, um, built my own guitar pedals, tinkered with hi-fi systems and guitar amps. Um, spent my days in classroom um, drawing um, perfect pedal board setups for my for my uh, guitar and my guitar amp, and um, so <laughs> I guess, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Look, look where it got me, hey. Um, so I think really the you know the 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 die was cast in as much as um, I was probably always headed towards a career that involved uh, listening to a lot of music. Um, and also um, tinkering with technology and, um, and you know, fortunately being a, a record producer and a recording engineer and a mixer is one of those, it's one of those, it is a craft, uh, but it's almost a perfect mix of art and science because it is a very, it's a sciencey thing where you can apply ideas of, um, 
where you can uh, comparative testing and uh, putting assumptions uh, to the test. Um, and also, of course, you're dealing with complex electronics. So um, there's that sciencey, nerdy, geeky side of things as well. It certainly as, did as sound the, like sciencey, nerdy, geeky phrases, those, those yeah, couple of things, comparative, uh, whatever it was, comparative testing or something. Yeah. Yes, and bias testing. So, you know, quite scientific ideas, um, but applying those ideas um, to the creation of art, which seems... It seems a little counterintuitive, but um, it is, you know, it is one of those professions where um, the outcome is artistic, but the process uh, can be quite scientific, but, um, but, a, but lot, with lots of creativity thrown in. And I guess the science part of it comes from the fact that you're dealing with, um, look, a recording studio is a machine for capturing, uh, for capturing the performances of the, of the musicians that are inside that machine at any particular time and then storing it as though it were a, some sort of a time machine, storing that performance uh, for people to listen to as many times as they like at a, at a later point uh, in time. Um, so, you know, it, it's a machine for capturing art, if you like, is what a recording studio is and, uh, and freezing that art form and then playing it in, in the future. Um, so, so know, we're in the future. A, we're in the future now, according to your younger self. And so yes. I guess what was your younger self doing on a, on a day-to-day level? You already said you, you were starting to play the guitar when you were four and you were drawing yeah. diagrams of foot pedals or what I can't think of what it was that you were, some piece of machinery that's, that's kind of um, used. But, I mean, yes. can we get a little bit more info about, you know, what sort of, uh, like, were you good at science, for example, or were you good I was, at maths, yeah. or would you, you know? I was good at science. I was good at science and good at maths and um, also a, a good musician as well. Okay, I went through that formal... Makes, that makes yeah, perfect I went sense. Through formal, um, I went through a formal classical training on the cello, um, but I was also playing in bands by the time I was about um, 13, 14 years old. And so um, uh, it seemed that... Um, that I was headed for, you know, a job in the arts, but a technically uh, a job with a technical bent within the arts. So um, I went from, you know, I played in um, the Tasmanian Youth Orchestra. I played in bands, um, had a musical upbringing. Uh, I went from school straight to the ABC. An opportunity arrived in the ABC to uh, to join them uh, and to train as a as a radio operator or as a as a radio producer, radio operator. So I worked in ABC Radio for 10 years and that was really where I got my formative training uh, in the technical side, uh, but also, you know, immersed in this fantastic institution which is uh, um, deeply connected with uh, the Australian arts community and so had my ears and my eyes opened um, to styles of music that I'd not heard before and also um, got to work with a lot of great producers who... um, from whom I learnt the art of uh, good radio production, but also not just good radio production, um, good uh, good production um, best practice, I guess. Uh, learning how to be a producer, how to learning how to um, uh, work with artists, how to get the best possible performances you can out of artists by by setting the preconditions, um, by empathising with them, 
um, by being all on the same page in terms of what you want as the artistic outcome and uh, getting it done on time and on budget and without any um, large technical flaws, which is you know, a major part of being a producer is, um, is getting it done in time at the cost that you said it was going to cost and having the best possible artistic outcome that you can achieve. So it's very fortunate to spend 10 years in the ABC uh, learning that. The last four years were at Triple J, which was um, where I, I guess I learned a lot about recording contemporary music, learned how to work fast, um, was, uh, was engaged with the Australian contemporary music um, community, the music scene, and um, uh, got to know a lot of the bands, the managers, the, the record labels, uh, so that I could um, uh, jump from the ABC to a freelance career and, um, and did that pretty smoothly. Went straight into um, recording albums back to back for perhaps the next 25 years, almost. Averaging about, I guess, averaging about eight albums a year, between six and eight albums every year on average. And um, uh, at the P, I guess when I was working very hard, um, I was working incredibly long hours. And it's one of those jobs that requires long hours because studios are expensive places to be. And that when the cost of a studio is a couple of thousand dollars a day, it's expected that, um, that you need to work, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours each day to get the job done. So there are enormous pressures, production pressures, similar to what you would see in films perhaps, where there are large budgets um, and there are schedules that have been locked in because, um, uh, you know, the marketing department and uh, the various cogs in the machine of the release of the, of the album are, have already been set in place. So. Um, one of the primary functions of a producer there is to get things done on time. Uh, but also, um, as a layer on top of all that admin, um, all the administrative stuff that you have to do is, is this idea that it has to be of artistic merit. And I think that's the, that's the most difficult part. It's the it's How does one quantify part. artistic merit? Exactly. Even having a conversation and finding the right words to use about artistic merit is difficult, I think, because it's a, it's a concept that is so complex um, as to almost defy the accurate use of language when talking about it. And it's, it's feelings-based, you know, it's an emotional thing. Um, but wouldn't your scientific mind um, then just how does your how does one scientific mind wrangle with those notions? Oh yes, that's an interesting question, Mark. Look, um, in in pro, it can it can serve you very well in making you aware of your biases and um, highlighting your biases. So, for instance, um, you're in a studio, you've bought a microphone for ten thousand dollars. Um, you put it in front of a singer, and um, uh, you're you want not, results. It's not just your, yeah, it's not just your bank account that tells you that it's going to sound fantastic. You've already set up a whole bunch of expectations about this ten thousand dollar mic um, is going to sound fantastic based on everything you've read, all the research you've done, the ten thousand dollar hole in your bank account. What do so they call these that? Some, devices, something confirmation uh, confirmation, bias. confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah. So. You've got to be aware of those sorts of things by doing um, blind A-B tests. You could put out a, up another microphone that was worth $200 and do a blind comparison, between, do a, 
uh, a single blind test between the two um, so that you listen to them without knowing which was which and uh, make a judgment purely based on your emotions. Um, does your, did you really say this is more pleasurable? A is more pleasurable than B. I'm going to choose A. Um, what constitutes a pleasurable sound? Perhaps we could talk about that a bit later. Yes. But there the, are the ways that you could apply science to when you're within a large, complex technical machine, i.e. a recording studio, that you could apply scientific ideas to, to in the quest for, for uh, pleasurable and listenable art. So, so when in those kind of um, years when you kind of had left school and you were working and you were, uh, you'd said that you'd learnt a lot of things, what were some of the key things that you'd learnt that, you, that are still with you? Like back in, uh, way back then, I keep thinking of your yeah. cello, cello as well. Because I mean, I don't play a cello or anything, but I, I have often wondered how do you get around? There's no measurements and frets. No frets. It's like, well, how <laughs> do you how do you where where to put your fingers? <laughs> um, uh, well, it's it's all muscle memory. You know, you you learn by playing scales. So that the um, the the distance in pitch between each of the notes becomes a familiar concept to you, um, you know, twelve note scale. So that you learn learn twelve note scale and what each note should sound like. And as you play those, your your fingers, um, the more you play them, the more accu accurately your fingers fall onto the onto the cello, and the more in tune it gets, and and the muscle memory starts to appear. So it's a mix of um, uh, muscle memory, uh, quick adjustment um, of your fingers if they're not in tune and, and also having a good ear so that in your mind you have an imprint of what the correct pitch should be and uh, what you hear. Uh, you make adjustments to make what you hear match what um, is in your mind as, as what correct 12-note scale should be. It's interesting that, look, I, I have, um, I've got absolute pitch. So um, if you were to play me a note, I could tell you what note it was. And if it was, if things are in and out of tune, I don't need a guitar tuner to tune a guitar um, very accurately. Um, but that's all been, that's all been trained. I was going to ask, was that something that was with you from the beginning or? I don't think you're born with these things. I think that it's trained. Um, 12 note scale is a Western it's a Western construction. It's a cultural idea, 12-note yeah, scale. Yeah, I have read that. Certainly. Yeah, I mean, things like um, there are mathematical relationships between certain notes. Octaves, for instance, an octave mm -hmm. is a doubling of frequency. So there's a mathematical relationship which, you know, is a, is a quality, perhaps you could call it a quality of the universe rather than it being a, a cultural construct. But all the gaps between the other notes, the other 12 notes, with perhaps the exception, I think, uh, uh, yes, no, that, that is true. The gaps between all the other 12 notes are a cultural construct that need to be learnt rather than them being a quality of the universe as an octave is. You're blowing my mind here, Paul. It is mm -hmm. kind of, yeah, I guess it does cut across so many different um, areas of, of uh, knowledge and, you know, understanding maybe. Uh, but it sounds like you were up for that kind of experience from the get-go, you know? Yeah. You kind of had the wherewithal and the drive and the, you know, ability, interest, skills, and then you've built on that over the years. 
Yeah, it was um, very. I was. I'm. I'm very, very fortunate to have been born into the family that I was, and to have had the schooling that I did. And so those, you know, it's been a confluence of those influences that has um, given me, um, given me a successful idea. And look, there was uh, a couple of things that I learnt at the ABC. One is you are never allowed to make mistakes because you're an on-air broadcaster, and a lot of stuff is live. And it was live when I started. You are simply not allowed to make on-air mistakes, and if you did, um, the department head would emerge from their office and scream at you in front of the entire staff uh, to humiliate you in a position where you would never dare make the same mistake ever again. And if you did, you were kicked out of the department and sent sent perhaps to a department that wasn't as glamorous. So that was one thing um, uh, to be completely thorough and to double and triple check everything that you do so that you don't waste people's time um, uh, with needless mistakes. So thoroughness was one thing. But the other thing that I learned was that um, the emotional response to something is the most important response. It's the most immediate. It's the unintellectualized response that we have to music and paintings and poetry and all these, well, everything that happens within our day, we have this emotional response to. And that's the most important response that you can have and that you should cherish that. And the way to really connect with your emotional responses is to listen in the mo to clear your mind and listen in the moment. I know this sounds all very hippy trippy, um, but if uh, but I found it to be true and a good way to make judgments that uh, cut across your biases, that cut a, um, uh, hopefully cut through your ego, and connect you with your feelings in the moment so that you can make clear judgments without anxiety or the voice of negativity or the voice of an imagined audience, even that having the voice, the opinions of an imagined audience um, to just purely make a connection with your uh, emotions so that you can make a judgment about was that vocal take any good or not? Would I put this on a record? Does it connect with me or do I just feel nothing? If I feel nothing or not much at all, then we probably need to do it one more time until there's some emotional connection there. So these are the sort of ideas that are running through your head constantly every day when you're in a recording studio. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So for a reasonably scientific approach to the situation, I, I very much like the notion that uh, one can be guided by things like emotions or feelings as, a, as an indicator of worth. Um, so where, what else can you tell us about that kind of territory or, you know, how does that apply to something that's tangible? Well, um Look, the way I work um, when I'm producing records is that I'm, I'm first approached by an artist uh, who will send me a demo of their work. And uh, there needs to be, when I listen to that, and it, it doesn't matter how good or bad the quality of it is, oftentimes they come in as iPhone recordings. But um, uh, through the veil of that poor quality, um, there needs to be an emotional connection with the music that's happening there. And... And um, I do think that um, that quality of personality that comes through in, in when musicians play, and particularly when they sing, 
um, is that um, you're getting a glimpse into their into their soul, I guess, for for one of a, a better word, but um, a, a glimpse into their personality and uh, the complexities of them as a human being. Uh, and so, if I'm not if if I'm not feeling that perhaps because the music is too derivative or perhaps the artist is trying to ape their heroes or perhaps the music that they're making doesn't feel, um, uh, doesn't feel honest enough that they're letting something of their personality into the performance. Um, and, I, you know, I guess I'm looking, I'm even on the lookout for imperfections uh, because I think that, um, you know, slight imperfections are the things that can, that are like us, that, that make um, make music more more interesting. Um, so I'm looking for that, uh, and I'm also looking for the potential to to grow to grow that uh, the the emotional content in the music, and also for it to be that they've you know that the artist has got some uh, has got abilities that I think I can work with, um, and that their songs connect with me enough that I would want to listen to them for 12, 14 hours a day six days a week for um, for two to three weeks. That's part of it. Look, I don't, wouldn't reasonably expect that I'm going to fall in love with every single song that everyone sends me. I think that's an unrealistic expectation. But um, but certainly, uh, as long as the music is listenable, and there'll, there'll always be a few songs on a record that I make that I really love and really connect with. And then, you know, the rest of it is applying your skills and, uh, and bringing out the very best that you can in uh, with the material that you're given and hopefully guiding the artist towards a, a point uh, to a place where they want to go. So that means finding out what their artistic vision is, how they see themselves, um, how they, what level of delivery they're going to give, um, what sort of emotions they're going to portray. You know, for instance, uh, is, uh, is it loud and aggressive music? Is it um, gentle? Is the voice uh, an interior voice that sings or appears to sing only to one member of the audience? Or is it a voice that um, that projects more and and appears to project to, to to everybody in this imagined audience? You know, what style of voice is it? Is it an exterior voice or an interior voice? Do you um, ask these things? questions of of the people that you collaborate with? Do you ask them? You know, literally, is it what sort of voice, or are you just thinking in the background and then you kind of uh, looking for opportunities to kind of guide them where it's appropriate? Or how how does it? Yeah, that's Work. it's more. That's they're more background questions that are in my mind. But to get the answers to those questions, I might ask them to um, send me a Spotify list of things that you like listening to, and that will uh, that will often tell me um, uh, where they're. You know, and I'll say not. Don't send me. Say you're a singer songwriter. Don't send me all your favourite heavy metal. Send me. You know, your favourite singer songwriters because that will give me some clues about. Um, what they're going for, and also if they've got any previous material too. That's, uh, so I'll be doing my research to try and find out what sort of artist they are, and if I can't glean those answers from those things, then perhaps I might, you know, I might say, what, how, how do you see yourself? But often, um, often artists find it very difficult being inside the jar. They can't see the label, so it's difficult for them to, to know how they're perceived, um, which sounds like a very human thing, doesn't it, Mark? Um, not being sure how you're perceived by the people around you. Um, and that's very, that's very true of artists. It is very complex. So I guess the job of a producer then is perhaps to try and interpret, help an artist um, uh, give an interpretation 
of what sort of an artist they are and, and let them know what their strengths and weaknesses are and play to their strengths and try to either bolster their weaknesses or, or you know, sweep them under the carpet. But certainly um, playing to people's strengths um, so that they... Look, the aim as a producer is to not necessarily make a record for the ages. I don't think that all music has to be music for the ages. Um, if you're making, you know, bubblegum pop that, and you're happy for people to have forgotten about the song in two months' time, that's completely legitimate. Um, but what you, what you want to do is to make a record that the artist uh, is proud of, that they feel where they've been um, represented honestly and that they've done the very best work, hopefully, that they've ever done in their life when they step into a studio with me and that the performances that they give are the best performances that they'll ever give and are capable of giving at, at that point in time. Yeah, so um, when, you're, when you're talking about all these... Um these kind of approaches, because I know that you do some teaching, if just, I would imagine students would ask, well, how do you know this? Or, you know, like how do you pin it down so that it's measurable? Or, you know, you can't just kind of, um, you know, the gut, gut instinct, for lack of a better word, mm. is one thing. But, I mean, what, what, I mean, do students ask you that? And then if they do... How do you, what do you say? Or like, what's the answer? Yes. Um, well, look, it's when, I think that when you, uh, when you've been working in a studio for 30 years, you've got this big data set of uh, what can and can't be achieved that you can fall back upon so that you can make fairly realistic judgments about what's going to work and what isn't going to work based on your experience. Um, but for a student, even just to know what sounds good and what doesn't sound good, uh, can be a different, a difficult thing for them uh, because they're so um, they're so uh, wound up with anxieties about whether they're doing a good job or not, or whether their school level is sufficient or not. And they're surrounded, you know, they're in this complex machine to record. Um, it's all very intimidating until you've perhaps spent ten years doing it and working with the technical side of things things becomes, you know, like driving a car. It's not something you have to think about. It's, it's very intuitive. And when you get to that point, you've got the brain space to be able to relax and listen with an open, relaxed ear. Um, so look for students when they ask me those questions, how would I know what sounds good or not? Um, my advice would be to, uh, um, to educate yourself by listening to music constantly. Um, by listening to everything with an inquiring ear, not just music, but when you walk down the street. Listen to every sound that you can listen to and identify every sound that's happening in the street and do that all the time. Just listen to the texture of things. Listen to the quality and the characteristic of the world around you. Um, when you're listening to human voices, listen to tease out what, what's going on in that voice, what is the tone of the voice, where is the, where's the character? Are there little moments of uh, where more of a person's character um, shines through in their voice? Um, so to listen, to, to try to have a nuanced understanding of the world of sound that we're constantly immersed in, not just music, but also to listen to a lot of music from different styles so that you understand that, um, that all music has a common purpose, and that is to make people feel something. 
and that the difference between different musical styles is not as great as you might think it is and that within each style there are um, conventions and some rules and to learn what those conventions are, to learn what the rules are so that you can either abide by them or break them as you choose um, on a on a situation by situation basis depending on what you're working on and just to to uh, build your skill base so that you can trust yourself. Um, you have to be able to trust your artistic judgments. If you can't judge your artistic judgments and start to undermine your own judgment, then you know the, the house comes crumbling down um, to the point where you, you can't trust what you're judging. And so when you do decide on something, the voice of doubt is always there. And that's not the path to making strong artistic judgments. Um, uh, you need to build confidence. And I think that confidence comes through experience. Um, you know, having a data set in your mind that you can fall back on a, a, a rich encyclopedia of experiences that you can fall back upon um, for the practical side of things and being in contact with your emotions about things as well. And, and, and uh, having a broad ear, a broad inquiring ear that hopefully um, doesn't, that isn't um, clouded by ideas of um, particular styles being better than others. Um, you know, trying to listen without, listen without prejudice, as the song says. Yeah. So yeah. are students, are generally a students up for that? Or are they kind of, they kind of can't comprehend what you're really meaning? Or, you know, they kind of, some of them get it, some of them don't. Like, I guess I'm just oh, yeah, trying look, to get it, that, that can hmm. this sort of stuff, to what extent can this be taught? That's such an interesting idea. I think that um, you can present the ideas, uh, you know, when you present the idea that um, your emotions are the most important filter through which you will judge any piece of music that you hear is... Um, uh, is a, a very appealing idea because all of us hopefully have got you know some we can do that that's that's a quality of of uh being a, a thinking feeling human that you've that everybody has got the ability to do that and that um everybody who enjoys music does that it's just that uh, record producers and recording engineers are a group of people who have specialist knowledge of how to make how to make that happen how to put that music into the world is our judgment better or worse than a normal listener's judgment? I don't know. You could argue. You could argue the toss there, but certainly, record producers, particularly record producers, not only have the taste, and they are often employed for their taste, um, but also have the knowledge of um, how to make those things happen. For students, um, I think that it's. It feels to me as though um, all you can do is present the ideas, and then if. Um, if a student perhaps wants to go down that path of uh, self-knowledge, um, getting in touch with their emotions, um, being able to rid their mind of all distractions and listen purely in the moment, not thinking about the rent or what's for lunch or did I turn the oven off, just being them and the music in the same way that, mu in the same way that a good musician is when they play their instrument. There's nothing, they're, they're, it's just them and their art and there's nothing in between those two things. It's very pure. So, um, so for a producer or an engineer to be able to get to that place is a wonderful thing. But I think that also um, uh, technical considerations are also important. And um, 
it's very easy to have conversations about equipment. You can talk about quote numbers, Objective. quote the models of microphones. Yes, these are tangible things are easy to talk about, whereas having conversations about um, emotions, emotional content, um, emotional Subjective. contact, they're very difficult. They're much more difficult uh, discussions for students to have because they don't have perhaps the language for it yet. And that's something that I try to encourage is that they find the language to express, find poetic language to express emotional ideas. And I think that that involves practice and also reading is an important part of it as well, that you can discover the language to help describe um, these ideas that have to do with emotion. Um, well, and then what, a what are some of these words or how, what are some of the, you know, the popular? Oh, sure. Popular um, kind of words or phrases or, you know, uh, language oh, we, that you fall back on or you? We talk about tension a lot. Uh, tension and release is a common thing that you would try to build into music. Um, uh, sadness, um, happiness, um, mystery, um, ambiguity. Um, uh, we also talk about uh, light and shade contrast. Um, so we use visual metaphors as well, but um, sound that might be dark and murky. Um, just for instance, um, the True Detective soundtrack and also perhaps the Mystery Road soundtrack from Series 1 um, I would describe as uh, dark, murky, mysterious, full of ambiguity. Um, that is country music which, uh, which ticks all the boxes with regard to um, the conventions of country music, but has some mystery and some undiscovered crevices and corners that don't have light in them but of and shadows that um, your mind and your ear are, are invited to explore which is a wonderful you know which is a metaphor for the for though for the um, for the writing and the storytelling in those series so it's a, a beautiful match but those kind of visual metaphors are quite common um, but there is, yes, you're right, there is a whole lexicon there which is largely learnt um, by people that study audio or people who, you know, are involved in audio. And that lexicon, you know, it's constantly evolving, it constantly grows. It's a little bit different from genre to genre. Um, but it is, you know, how else are we going to, in a studio, when you've got to talk about an idea, you have to find language for it. And so visual metaphors often work uh, quite well. But yeah, there's a bunch of words that everyone uses. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. You, you do producing as well as mixing songs. I guess it's all part of, uh -huh. you know, depending on the project. But then there's a, a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, interaction with other people. You used the word ego before and, you know, there's a fair amount of negotiation. And You talked us through some of the initial processes and, and you know, how you might get more information about uh, someone that you're collaborating with. Um, but can you, can you tell us more about, you know, the how you, I guess the dynamics maybe, the dynamics of what goes of the situation when you're producing an album, like dynamics with you and the oh. musicians or you and the artists, you and the writer, you and the 
you know, and how do, how does it all you and the other crew members? Yeah, well, um, it uh, there's a you start. There are three phases of production. Uh, there's the pre-production, which is where um, you'll listen to the songs in their very basic form and start to form a relationship with the artist that you're working with. And this is really where um, where the trust is built between the producer and the artist and uh, such that uh, the producer feels that they could be completely honest um, with the artist about song quality, for instance, or whether songs need um, rearranging or perhaps if there are things that could be changed. Um, so the producer needs to be able to feel that they can give those suggestions and that they'll be uh, accepted in good faith and in the knowledge that, uh, that the, producer, uh, the producer's experience and knowledge um, is, worth, is worth listening to, not necessarily accepting, but worth listening to. Um, of course, any, uh, any good producer knows that not all their, not all their suggestions are going to land and that um, that's absolutely fine because hopefully you've got so many ideas that even if a minority of those ideas land, then you've contributed something uh, to the project. Um, obviously, the other person are using their critical facilities and filtering your ideas and have deemed um, these are good ideas, I'll accept them, these are not good ideas, um, we're going to stay with my vision. Um, which is important because the artist, it's their record, it's not the producer's record, um, it's the artist whose um, name, <coughs> excuse me, that record's going to be associated with. So it's important that producers acknowledge that fact that it's, that it's about the artist's vision, not so much the producer's vision. So that's the, um, the pre-production phase and then you go into the studio for the production phase, which is a bit like the shoot of a film, I guess, where you're capturing all the performances, you're shaping the songs, um, you're getting all the component parts and that's really where a lot of negotiation uh, happens because you're you're at the point of you know this is do we uh, um, uh, this block of this block of marble do we do we knock this into shape or do we throw it away and start again so um, a lot of very important editorial decisions are made in that process and um, look it's not as fraught with tension as um, uh, you might like to imagine uh, because by this stage a lot of trust has already been built up through the pre-production process which is often just emailing and, and phone calls uh, to and from just to have a discussion you know all good things start with a discussion and that's very true for making records um, but um, in the production phase when you're in the studio uh, uh, ideas are bandied around it's a contest of ideas um, hopefully people can argue strongly for their ideas um, but also are open enough to let them go if there's a consensus that it's not a great idea or that in, um, in actually performing the idea that they realise that, oh, what was in my head and what I'm hearing coming out of the speakers are not the same thing. And uh, perhaps in my head I had, um, I had perhaps, uh, I'd given it some qualities that when I actually play it or sing it just simply aren't there. So the job of the producer then is to be perhaps the ears of the audience before the audience gets to hear the record. Um, uh, a, um, uh, an, in, an interested, invested party, but someone that has just got that two steps of detachment back so that they can listen as the audience listens to it and they can, uh, they can put aside, put to one side perhaps all the backstory of, just for instance, perhaps there's a, 
Perhaps there's a guitar solo that has taken eight hours to record and it was really very, very hard and it was fraught with um, tension and, uh, and anxiety and um, moments of, uh, of triumph and then moments of disappointment. And after this eight-hour process, you've got a guitar solo that you're happy with. Well, um, a good producer needs to be able to listen to that and go, oh, it's just a guitar solo. I've, uh, and put put aside the ideas of all oh, the eight hours of fights and tension and tears and just put all that to one side because the audience, of course, doesn't know that backstory, doesn't care, listens to that guitar solo in the moment without knowing the story behind it and judges it based on whether it's a whether it connects with them or not. So a good producer needs to be able to cut through um, all those backstories and all the process and all the emotions that might have come with the with the creation of something and hear it from the point of view that the audience does. Um, so, uh, but you would think, oh, this might be a source for a lot of, um, a lot of uh, contested ideas in the studio. And they are contested, um, but, but not, look, it's, I've had a couple of huge stouches in studios and they're the, it's the vast minority. It's, you know, it's 0.01% of my studio experiences is screaming and tears. Um, which I have seen, but it's so very rare because you just don't go hiring people that you don't um, share an artistic affinity with. You know, um, an artist is not who knows my, my backlog and my catalogue and the style that I work in the way that I work. They're not going to hire me if they think that I, um, I can't bring something to their record. So there's already, before you step into the studio, there's already a large degree of trust between the artists and the producers and their team the engineers, the session musicians, their band. Um, if there wasn't the trust there, there's an understanding that the artistic process could not progress if people hadn't, hadn't put trust in one another. So, so you'd used a phrase when we chatted earlier, in, intersubjective agreement. I guess this is in this sort of territory. It's kind of yeah. pop up regularly, I would imagine. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting idea, isn't it? How, how is it that... Um, perhaps you and I, we would listen to a piece of music. How is it that we would both go, oh, I think, yeah, that's great. You know, the Beatles are great. Um, who, could, who possibly would not like the Beatles? What, what could there be not to like about the Beatles? Um, I mean, I'm only choosing the, the Beatles because it's, it is one of these, you know, there is this large intersubjective cultural agreement that the music of the Beatles is great. Um, uh, what about people might that, people might think oh I don't like them because they're just too popular. It's well, that's a sound. Absurd. <laughs> that's absurd. That's that's an absurd idea. You don't like something because oh, other people too many yeah. other people like it. It gets back to uh, that um, feeling thing, doesn't it? It's like it's kind yeah. of the music and you and how it's impacting or ha what sort of emotional effect does it have on you yes, without getting into further thoughts of you know, popularity. Well, look, I've, Mark, I've thought about that idea for, you know, more than three seconds. And maybe it is that uh, people that mount that argument um, see music more as a, um, a tribal identifier and that they don't wish to be part of that tribe. And I, can I can follow that. that logic or, you know, there's a yeah. bit of an intellectual thing happening there. But, yeah, again, it's further away from the actual music and what yes. music is. Yeah, that seems like, as you say, more of a, an intellectualised position on 
on how I should judge music, and perhaps uh, it's putting into it, putting it into a broader cultural context than simply um, the direct connection of the music to your emotions. So we can generally assume that that particular artist, or you know, the artists, they they oh. kind of got a particular sound that you know it will foster and encourage a kind of, I guess, flow of. Uh, communication between people. Oh, yeah, I like that. That's working. Or, or alternatively, that's that's definitely not working. And we can both agree yeah. on that. Mm. And I think that that's based upon uh, the fact that probably we've both listened to, um, you know, the the set of of music that we've listened to over the course of our lives is probably largely similar. We've both been listening to um, Western pop music, um, you know, I use pop music very broadly, but that could encompass um, country, pop, rock, metal, um, yeah. you name it, it all sort of falls under this umbrella of Western contemporary music and that we're all aware of what the conventions are and um, so inev inevitably all sort of um, us, I guess, being in the same, we're all in the same park, you know, we're sitting under the same trees um, we've all got a, we're in different parts of the park, but we've all got more or less the same view uh, that um, coming to an agreement about what does and doesn't work um, isn't as difficult as perhaps if you, you know, imagine you were working with someone who had never listened to a note of Western music in their lives and what you might um, think of as sounding fantastic would have absolutely no, um, no meaning for them whatsoever, absolutely no meaning at all and would just sound uh, confusing to them. So, so you know, I guess when you're working with people um, that are from the same culture as you and have been brought up on the same uh, diet of, of Western contemporary music, then, yeah, agreeing on what's good and what isn't. And, look, a lot of the time it's interesting that um, artists will, and producers, um, we will we'll name drop. So we'll, be, we'll say something like... Um, uh, we'd love a white album drum sound for this record, and everyone knows what that means. Oh yeah, but that um, isn't that, as they say, like a shared nomenclature or yeah. a shared kind of, yeah. yeah. you know, that's part of that language you were talking about. So it oh, it's purposeful it's to to kind of it is draw in other references. It's a good way. It's a good shortcut because it gets us straight to that sound. We don't even have to talk, and there might be maybe someone who's like, oh, I'm not quite sure what that is, and you'd say, well, it's recorded with minimal microphones in a small room with tea towels on all the drums so that there's no length in any of the sounds and it's dead dry, and, and, and that's fairly well understood um, by most people. Sometimes I work with artists who never name drop, and I find that very interesting that they, while they in their head they have a, um, you know, they've got this big sort of, um, iTunes library in their head of all, all the music they've ever listened to, which informs their judgment. Um, but they won't name drop. They use poetry instead to describe the music. And I always find that fascinating. And, For and, example, um, what, what, how do they, how might difficult. they describe something? Um, okay. They might say, they might say, I want this section uh, to feel, uh, I want this to, to feel like a, I want to pause here and I want it to feel dramatic and I want it to, build a sense of we're going to drop all the instruments out for these two bars and I want that to feel slightly uncomfortable. I want there to be less music there than your ear wants there to be so that it builds a sense of tension and then at the end of that two-bar drop, 
I want a lot of instruments to come in so that we get a payoff moment. And I then I want to perhaps, yeah, I want to build their, the tension. They're like creative process, I guess. is That's what they're comfortable with or that's how they approach that situation. And I guess yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of assuming you can work with that as well. Oh, I love working uh, with those ideas. I think that they're much more challenging conversations and finding the language is more difficult and mounting an argument becomes more difficult. But, um, but if you can find the right language for it, then you can make your arguments for a particular idea uh, persuasive. And um, I guess I'm thinking there's, there must be an advantage for that kind of the latter approach in that it's, it's not referencing something that's already existing. It's, it's something yeah. that, you know, there's, there's more, more, more correct <clears throat> answers in that mix because who knows what you might come up with. Yeah, I, look, I agree. I think there is, um, there's more room to, um, <clears throat> I think within that there's a, and I guess it's worth acknowledging that even the terms that are used in those conversations, there's still some nomenclature there which is learned, but it's um, nomenclature that is learned outside of music. So it's, you know, bringing appreciation of literature and movies and poetry and visual art, bringing those appreciations um, within to the realm of um, music critique critique of ideas within a recording studio. Um, so I guess within that, there's an understanding that uh, when you're talking in terms like that, everyone has understood that we know what the conventions are here, um, but perhaps we're going to, we want to bend those boundaries a bit. And uh, rather than setting up very clear straight lines or you know block shapes of the areas that they, we're going to work in, we're going to make those boundaries a little more permeable and um, and move outside the conventions that um, we all understand and in the hope of coming up with something that perhaps within, you know, a discussion within a group of people, we might sit down and break bread over lunch and talk about this for an hour. And at the end of it, everyone, there's this new idea that has just sort of fermented out of nothing that no one imagined before, that having then recorded it, everyone is like, well, wow. I never thought about, I never heard this in my head and it's fantastic. And that for me is a really exciting approach to making music and it's exciting for the people that are in the room at the time and hopefully, and this is the, this is the big idea, Mark, is that the audience gets to hear that excitement in the music if it's been well captured. In this episode, I chatted with Paul McKercher a music recordist, producer and mixer. You can find more information about this episode, including a link to Paul's website in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.